Our reading today uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptise any of you, except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you are baptised in my name. Oh, yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't think remember if I baptised anyone else. But Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thank you, Rod. Well, when I was 18, some time ago now, sadly, I was for a while the envy of my friends. Because we used to go to, this is a slide here, thanks, Owen. We used to go week in, week out to this pokey-looking club in Manchester. Um, Played all the real cool indie music that we liked to dance to. Well, the cool thing was, I could get in for free, whilst all my friends had to pay five quid for the privilege. Because I'd just say to the bouncer on the door, I'm with Sharon. Yeah, because you see, Sharon and my wife, then, who back then was my new girlfriend, she worked in Fifth Avenue, this club, collecting glasses. So she could put me on the guest list. So a uh, uh, little now, I'd turn up, you know, Mr. Suave, with my centre parting, my baggy jeans and my Doc Martins. Uh, I'm with Sharon. And that temporarily bumped up my status, made me a VIP. You can see it's a real VIP location. Made me a VIP. And I could ride on her coattails into the club for free. Just by dropping a name. Well, in today's passage, Paul starts to address the problems facing this church in Corinth. And the first cap of the, off the rank is that there's division. And it's to do with their name dropping. So Paul has started this letter to them, um, to God, thanking God for them. Thanking God that, he, that God set these people apart as his sanctified, chosen people, his church, one with his church all around, along with all those who call on the name of Jesus. All those who call on the name of Jesus. But now there are divisions arising among them because they're calling on the name of particular leaders as their badge of honor instead. 
as their way of getting ahead. And it's causing disunity and it's distracting them from who they are in Christ. So what we're going to look at today is we look at Paul's appeal to them. There's an outline in your leaflets along with the reading. There's, we'll look at Paul's appeal to them for unity and we'll think about what he means, what kind of unity he's talking about. Then we'll look at the presenting problem, what's behind that, and what problems we might run into. And then finally, we'll look at the solution that Paul commands. So first then, Paul's appeal. Paul appeals to them to be united. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So you remember last week, Paul established at the start of this letter his authority, that he's God's official eyewitness ambassador apostle. But that's not how he appeals to them in in this sentence here. He highlights their inherent unity that they factually have, their reality, by addressing them as family, brothers and sisters. So I don't know if you have family meetings ever, ever so often. They can be helpful. They can be stressful. Um, And we all find ourselves playing different roles in them, don't we? I'm 50 years old, but I reckon if we had a family meeting with my siblings right now, I'd fall back into that people-pleasing, younger sibling, mummy's boy role, to some extent at least. And in a family, we're not all the same status or authority or the same roles, different roles, but we're all family. We're all working towards the same goal of the good of the family. So Paul is an apostle, but fundamentally, he's another brother in the church. And he appeals to them as a brother, not just because he wants everyone to get along, but on the, not on the basis of who he is, but in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So because God has shown us grace, because done us everything needed to reconcile us to God, give us peace with him, to make us his people, by grace, because of Jesus and who he is, because all of that, be united. It's a tragedy when a church splits apart, not just because of the relational um, hurt and the broken relationships, but because... A church splitting apart goes against what church is. It's a bunch of people rooted in God's grace to us in Christ. Grace that never changes. People who are, it goes against, we are in, goes against what, who we really are in what matters most for now and eternity. But that we're set aside by God to show to the world where everything is heading. Everything be united in Christ. So what kind of unity is Paul talk about? Because he says in verse 10, look again, all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there will be no divisions among you. Sorry, that, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. I think that's a big ask, isn't it? Let's do a little experiment. So we've got a picture here, right? What's this? It's a what, sorry? A scone? Any, any more takers for what it's called? A scone. All right, hands up for scone. Hands up for scone. Oh, yeah, a couple of outliers. Hold your ground, hold your ground. 
It's only a scone when it's gone. <laughs> All right, if you're making a cream tea, jam first, cream first. Hands up for jam first. Hands up for cream first. Yeah, there's room for everybody in this church, don't we? It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so that's a simple thing, and we can't agree on that. I mean, we can keep quiet about our differences in order to keep the peace, but you could pretend you think it's a scone when you mean it's a scone, but it wouldn't mean you're thinking the same thing. Is this the kind of thing Paul's expecting us to agree on, like just be so uniformly of mind? Well, no. The good thing with the Bible is we've got all the bits of the Bible to help us know what things, what it can't mean, if that makes sense. Um, so for starters, the whole reason Paul is writing this letter is to correct them. So he doesn't think the same thing as them, does he? He thinks they're, they're wrong. He's saying, stop doing the wrong thing. Stop believing the wrong thing. Here's the right thing to do, and here's the right thing to believe. So that's not mindless conformity for the sake of unity. And in chapter 5, and we'll see, we saw it in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians and elsewhere, where there's cases of persistent, unrepentant, organized, really prideful sin by a, a person or people, and especially in cases of false teaching, Paul's apostolic command is to exclude them, is a form of division. So clearly, he's not calling for unity at all costs, where we're all thinking and believing and behaving in different beliefs, different ethics, and just turning up in the same place and calling that unity. In chapter 12, Paul's going to talk about diversity in the church, that we are, by God's good design, on purpose, really different to each other. He'll talk about the freedom that we have in the gospel to make our own minds up about things we're free about, about being single or married, about what food we eat. And so there's a tension. Our call to unity in Christ's name isn't a call to all be exactly the same, sort of blandly uniform clones that never question anything. But nor is it a case of anything goes. There are things that we ought to divide over, that we must divide over, because we're not unified in the first place if we're dividing those things. So the context of this letter tells us that what we all need to agree on in what we say, what we are to be of common mind and thought about, is Jesus. Knowing ourselves primarily as set apart as his holy people. Trusting in him for our standing before God. Living for him, not for ourselves, in response to his grace. So with that unity in trusting and belonging to Jesus as our foundation, there are loads of things that don't matter as much that we're free to disagree about. So I've got a diagram here, I think, Owen. Let's see if it... Yeah, sorry, that rhyme's a bit small, but this has helped us help me in thinking when we were um, planning to plant this church, um, helping us think through what is a, what are definitely essentials that we must be unified in. So first order stuff, things that are definitely part and parcel of being a Christian, essential to Christian belief. So things like Christ's deity, resurrection, the need for salvation, um, God is Trinity, things like that. If we aren't agreed on those things, then we aren't really brother and sister in the first place. Okay? 
Second order things, these are important things in church life, things of conviction that Christians disagree on, things that won't save us, but that we come, we're convinced uh, how we should go about being church. And if we disagree on these, we're still brothers and sisters in, in Christ, um, but you'd need to work out if you can remain in perf- peaceful fellowship without driving each other crackers on these things. So, for example, we've, done, we've baptized infants here, and there have been people in the congregation that I know don't think that's the right thing to do. But they've expressed that to me privately, and then kept it to themselves, joined in with the, with the service, and not gone on about it. All right? So they could do that in their good conscience. Other things, matters of conscience, you know, you might not be able to. You've got to work out if you can remain in fellowship. That's part of the reason we do a welcome lunch every so often, just to raise up the big issues, to get, just give you a shortcut to work out if um, you can remain in fellowship. Uh, third order stuff, that's personal preference, tradition, style, like the most controversial topic in any church, the music, things like that, you know. The kind of thing we ought to have a good reason for why we're doing that, doing it that way, but also be able to bear with one another if it's not quite how we'd like it. So it's good to be clear on these things, where we're free in the gospel to disagree um, and where we must be of one mind. So it's a bit like Aldi. I've got a picture here, right? So in Aldi, so here in Australia, the, the produce is local. The things that, uh, you know, the bargain that you don't really need in the middle um, might be a bit different. But fundamentally, the layout and the signage is the same in any Aldi around the world, such that the biscuits, when I go to, back to Manchester in England, the biscuits are on the same shelf in the same place as they are in Morfitt Vale. The snow gear and the trumpets, they'll still be in the middle. It's slightly different where the law demands it. So here in SA, there's not a booze section like there is in the rest of the Aldis. But if the fundamentals were different, if they moved all the shelves around, if um, it just wouldn't be an Aldi, would it? And it'd be divisive and counterproductive for the local Aldi manager to start shifting things around and start selling Woolworths groceries, for example. just wouldn't be Aldi. So we can differ over details, the non-fundamentals, but we are united around Jesus and we don't get to change the things we say and think about him. Our unity must be around the gospel. Which raises a question, do we need to worry about the fact that there's so many different denominations, church denominations? Is that a sign of disunity? I mean, I think we have to admit it's not a good look to outsiders and should give us pause but actually, I think denominations are, in a funny way, a sign of unity that so many different organizations with such diverse histories, different people, different locations, are all on about, at heart, on paper at least, are all on about those first order things about Jesus, the same things. And whether a it seems to me that whether a church is on about those first order fundamentals about Jesus seems less and less to do with what denomination you're part of. So I've got another picture. Thanks, so. Just for your encouragement. This is me at um, an intensive I was on for my leadership development program with Reach Australia is the organization. Reach Australia's vision is for thousands of healthy, evangelistic and multiplying churches. 
And who is with me on this cohort? Independent churches, Anglicans, Baptists, even Presbyterians. Yeah. All on about the same thing, all united in the gospel. And actually, we barely, denominations barely get a mention, only insofar as they're helpful or unhelpful for the gospel. So unity. Be united is the appeal. Next, we find out a bit more about the problem. The problem. They've become proud about what leader they are following. Verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So we know from Acts 18 and later in this letter that Apollos, he's a good guy. Cephas, he's the apostle Peter. Um, and we know about Paul. There's nothing particularly wrong about any of these leaders. No theological differences. No suggestion that they were asking anyone to divide in their name. Um, just as a side note, it is not a bad thing to recognize good leaders and point people to them. That's an okay thing, a good and right thing to do. So sometimes people come checking us out as a church, and it's clear they're going to be checking out other places as well. So I try and give them a shortcut. I say, don't bother with any of the other churches except try City Lights South down at Chris's Beach or try um, Trinity Brighton. Not because um, Tyler at Christie's or Simon at Brighton not because of who they are so much, but because I trust them to be on about Jesus, to point to Jesus and not themselves. Now, um, the problem the Corinthians have got, I've got a little video here. A bit of context helps us to understand the problems the Corinthians have. It's all about status. This video comes out. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. <laughs> Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. <laughs> so sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him. Because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But while I am poor, I am industrious, honest, and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them. <laughs> but I don't. We all know our place, but what do we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him. But a feeling of superiority over him. I get a pain in the back of my neck. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
all about status. That's the different classes in the 60s in England, in Britain. But the Corinth was obsessed with status, you know, where their station in life. And feeding into that was a culture of visits by impressive traveling public speakers. And most of that, there's a hint in um, chapter 1, verse 26, that most of the Corinthians in the church would have had a bit of an inf- been more like the smallest guy. So 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. All the ways you Corinthians might think of yourself as middle or upper class, not many of you were there. So it's likely the underlying cause of the problem is that they're being shaped more by Corinthian culture, this need for status, than by the gospel. Shaped more by their own culture than by the gospel. So the culture, their culture is to want to be in with the in crowd, to be part of a success story to boost their status. They've become so engrossed with backing the right horse in order to advance themselves, they've forgotten what the race is about. So on, you know, you can imagine it. I follow Paul. He's the most spectacular convert, kind of thing. Well, I follow Peter. Peter was there from day one with Jesus, wasn't he? I follow Peter. And then, of course, there's the most pious, super spiritual. Oh, well, I just follow Jesus. Well, what's the danger for us? I'm at a Trinity church. I follow Colin Taylor. No, I don't think any of you are going to be bragging about that. No, I think the problem for the Corinthians was letting their local culture drive how they approach church and their leaders, distracting them from the gospel and their status is in Christ. How are we in danger of doing that, of being shaped by our culture? There's loads of different ways you can think of. I think a big one is having a consumer mentality because we're bombarded with choices for everything all the time, aren't we? We're encouraged to shop around in most spheres of life. You know, there's no jobs for life anymore. They don't commit to us, so we don't commit to them. Just stick at it as long as it works for us. And we can tend to carry that mindset into church. Will this church meet my needs instead of, will I be able to serve here to meet this church's needs? Here's a joke for you that I heard from Duncan at Victor Harbour. So a man is rescued from a desert island. Um, And on the desert island, he's built three structures. So his rescuer says to him, oh, what are these buildings that you've made? He said, oh, well, that one's my house and that one's my church. And he says, well, what's that third building over there? He says, oh, that's the church I used to go to, but I didn't like the music. What, what would our culture tell us to do um, if there's something about church we don't like? Uh, what would our, our culture tell us to do if someone at church, if we fall out with someone at church, or they're driving us crackers? Well, probably tell us to move on, just find somewhere that's better suited to us. What does the Bible tell us to do, though? Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Don't get me wrong. There are good reasons to change church sometimes. And please hear, I'm not saying if there's something you don't like about our church, just put up and shut up. 
I'm not saying that. It's good for us to keep questioning why we're doing what we're doing. Is it lining up with God's purposes for his church? Is it doing what we think it's doing? All of that is unified around making Jesus bigger and us less. So consumerism is one. I think another one that's growing in our culture is the wellness culture. It is wellness. I see it all the time in things. We used to call it being happy and healthy. And now it's called wellness. All right? And it's widened out in scope to say that anything you don't like, anything that causes you to suffer, must be bad and got rid of. Whereas the Bible promises us, we will suffer because Jesus suffered. So in worldly terms, belonging to Jesus in many ways reduces your wellness. After all, the symbol of our faith is an execution device. Yet a big theme of 1 Corinthians is going to be the way and the wisdom of the cross. That true life is found in giving up our lives, our wellness, to Jesus. So those are just two ideas of how we might have the culture we live in shape us more than the gospel. I bet you can think of your own. Uh, Busyness, being connected 24-7, individualism, whatever it is. The gospel always has a better answer. Always being gathering as his gospel people is always the better way to go. There'll be lots more incidences of challenging culture as we go through 1 Corinthians. So what's the solution to this division that's creeping in? What's the solution? Well, it's got two parts. Number one, don't be daft. And number two, name drop Jesus. First of all, Paul says, where's the effects of don't be daft? Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Rhetorical questions, which the answer is, of course, no. Of course Christ isn't divided, so why should they be divided around him? They're all on about the same Jesus. Paul didn't die for them, so why declare an attachment to Paul rather than Jesus, who he's proclaiming? They weren't baptized in the name of the Father, the Apostle, and the Holy Spirit. Paul knows he's only as important as much as, in as much as he bears witness to Jesus. And verse 14 and 16, he's glad he didn't reinforce people noticing him by baptizing them. Or did he? He can't quite remember. It's a bit like if you bump into an old work colleague or maybe an old teacher who was important to you, a big deal to you, but as you're chatting, it soon becomes apparent they can't remember your name. It's not that Paul didn't care that they were baptized. He just doesn't care that it was him that did it. It's, in, it's Jesus in whose name they were baptized that really matters. So don't be daft. And secondly, the only name we need to name drop is Jesus. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or an eloquence, lest that the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul has sought to teach the gospel in such a way that he as the messenger is forgotten, never distracting from the message, the good news, that we can be forgiven and saved by Jesus if we trust in him. And if church becomes about something else other than Jesus, 
where we're taking a wrong turn somewhere. Because Jesus is the only one who's given himself up for us to save us. Jesus is the only one who name drops us before the Father in heaven. And he's doing that now. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So the solution to becoming divided, to stop being divided, is to unite around Jesus and his gospel, to keep name-dropping him in everything we're about as we gather as his people, to be thinking the same thing in being gospel-minded, checking our priorities, our practices, everything we do with the same output in mind, glorifying Jesus, making and growing disciples of him in his strength. That's miles better, miles more worthwhile than attaching ourselves to any other name. I guess the Corinthians were latching on to leaders because they longed to belong to something bigger than themselves. They longed for a sense of belonging to a tribe that could raise their station in life. And people like to be part of a success story. But the sad thing is, in chasing after human leaders, human tribes, they were missing out and enjoying the fact that there's all, there is all a better eternal tribe that they were already part of, a greater success story that they will last into eternity. They are, remember from verse 2, the church of God in Corinth. They are those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. They are together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. They're already part of a bigger eternal tribe. So let's keep preaching the gospel to one another, remembering the grace of God that we know in and through um, Jesus, throwing our lot in with Jesus so that we're at peace with God for forever. Keep preaching the gospel to each other. We're free to disagree about lots of things, but let's do that with gentleness, with humility, with other person-centeredness. Let's do that with a commitment to unity in the gospel. Let's keep an eye out for the ways in which the world we live in is discipling us, telling us how to live, so that we can keep an eye out that we make sure we're still shaped by gospel culture, by the gospel, and not by our culture. And when we sin, when we feel like we're going to mess everything up, or when we feel like we're lagging behind, that we're missing out, or generally losing at life, well, let's name drop Jesus. Name drop Jesus to ourselves, to one another, to people who don't even know him yet. Because he gives us a status beyond all measure, life to the full, starting now and into eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we don't need to go chasing status. We don't need to chase winning at life as our culture defines it because we are your church. We are chosen 
holy people, blameless before you through Christ. And all glory goes to him. But please um, help us to see where we've been blinded by our culture, where we're shaped and formed more by the world than by the gospel. Sometimes we can see that when we can help us to turn away from that. And sometimes we can't see it. Please wake, wake us up and just show, take the blinkers off. Uh, Lord, we just long for a church that demonstrates the unity we have in Christ, that glorifies your name. Amen.